From 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, welcome to The Art of the Matter. Made possible by the ongoing support of listeners like you. And from the Palladium at the Center for the Performing Arts. The music for today's show is courtesy of the Buscelli Wallarab Jazz Orchestra from their Heart and Soul album. Available on iTunes. I'm Sharon Gamble. Welcome to The Art of the Matter. This week, we'll take a trip to Bloomington's IU Eskenazi Art Museum and we'll learn about Tad Robinson's new music. And don't forget, we'll have that arts calendar we call... What do we do? do? All that and more right after the latest news from NPR. Welcome back to The Art of the Matter on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble. On today's show, we'll learn why being a conductor is easier than being a trumpeter, and we'll get ready for WFYI's Ice Miller Wine Fest. But first, March is Disabilities Awareness Month, and Gail Holtman and Linda Whistler of ArtMix join me in the studio to talk about what we mean when we talk about art redefining disability. All right, so for people who are like, wait, what's Art Mix? It's had a couple of different names. I'm going to start with you, Gail. Yes, we have had a couple of different names. Uh-huh. And uh, please explain. Well, we were established back in the late 70s as Arts Unlimiting with Lois Templeton and Lois Horth and Sue Moreland. And then in the 80s, we affiliated which, uh, with an organization which was known then as Very Special Arts. This is a national and even international organization based out of the Kennedy Center, uh, founded by Jean Kennedy Smith. And um, we've been VSA, VSA Arts of Indiana. <laughs> but in 2015, we rebranded ourselves to Art Mix, Art Redefining Disability. And that was the first opportunity that we could change our name and still be the affiliate mm-hmm. for this international organization. And we took that opportunity because we had a lot of trouble with people who had never heard of us and thought the V was for veterans or Vietnamese or volunteers. Oh, my gosh. Uh, our name and our logo and tagline didn't really say a whole lot about what we did and uh, why it matters. So we, we worked to change that and believe we've got a great name, a great tagline, a great logo that really express our creative approach, the, the, the central place of the arts in what we do, and also the role of those arts in redefining disability. And you have such a remarkable range of programs and, um, and activities, uh, not just in Indianapolis, but you have a partner agencies, partners um, in different parts of the state. Um, but everything is kind of highlighted uh, in the upcoming month of March, which is Disabilities Awareness Month. And tell me about um, the theme and kind of the core programs. I'm looking both to Gail and to Linda on this. So which whichever. So Disability Awareness Month is actually a national effort to bring awareness to people with disabilities and the contributions that they can bring. And so the theme for this year is I'm Not Your Inspiration. And it's a, it's a great theme. Uh, sometimes uh, people with disabilities, when they excel, when they succeed, um, it's seen as inspiring because they've overcome their, their disability. And a lot of people with disabilities are just first and foremost people. So they've come to their station in life, made their accomplishments, have made their achievements, um, not maybe in spite of their disability, um, but because that's who they are, just yeah. like the rest of us. Don't pluck me out of my life and make me an example. Yeah. This is my life. Yeah. There's a great story uh, that I want to share about John Kemp, who was the director of VSA National, who has um, four prostheses. And he was on a plane or a train and at some point trying to reach into his coat pocket to hand some tickets to someone. And uh, that someone said, wow, you do really well with those things, um, talking about the, the prosthesis on his arms and hands. And John uh, said, he replied, well, you really do well with those things. Um, mm-hmm. And the attendant had hands. And so, you know, I think John's point was, this is who I am. Um, you know, it's not necessarily um, makes me special. It's just who I am. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and the that's... Maybe something that your agency helps folks with because if one in five people is experiencing some kind of disability through a lifetime, we all have to figure out how do, how do we talk about this, right? 
I think it's all about adaptation, and it's the kind of adaptations that we make every day. Um, sometimes I am doing something and I think, wow, a third arm would be really useful right now. <laughs> so, you know, that's the same kind of thing. It's, it's, you have a goal and you want to get to point B and you just figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, um, as far as disability awareness month, our gallery, um, has an opportunity to kind of, um, expose the community to all of the accomplishments um, as artists that the people that make art with us have. So um, each month our gallery has a different focus and, um, you know, the work is um, put together by uh, people with disabilities or people in the artist community that are also associated with the disability culture. Um, we were talking before we turned the microphones on about a, a conversation you probably hear kind of regularly, which is um, a, a sibling, a caregiver, a, a parent maybe of somebody one of your teaching artists is working with comes and says, my kid, my my cousin, whoever it is, uh, came home with a paycheck and it was just this glorious day. Tell, tell me about that dynamic and that must be so gratifying. It really is. Um, in the same way that um, that all of us like to feel connected to the community and able to contribute, um, the program that we were talking about is Urban Artisans, and it's a vocational program for high school students um, with disabilities, but it's very much an inclusive program. There are um, 16 through 22-year-olds in the program, both with and without disabilities, Um, And, you know, one of our main focuses in everything we do is to provide opportunities. And we saw a need for students with disabilities to have a little bit more time to grasp what it's really like to get and keep a job. So, you know, these are students who, by the time they're in high school, maybe have been told what they can't do. And when they come into Urban Artisans, they start to understand what they can do. And, you know, just, you know, like any 16-year-old with his first paycheck or, you know, uh, getting to work on time, learning how to get along with others, you know, that's what it's about. And, you know, to to get through each day sometimes is the task for all of us. And then two weeks later to get a paycheck is like, <laughs> wow, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I, I'm doing it, you know. So it's it's amazing, absolutely amazing. How do you find your teaching artist? Um, is there kind of a, a, a training pattern that you look for, or how does how does that work? Well, uh, there's not one answer for that. Uh, our teaching artists have three distinct skill sets, and uh, they need to come to us with at least two of them, uh, the first one being their art form, whether it's a formal uh, training or background or informal uh, background in, in the arts, uh, music, movement, dance, uh, theater, visual arts, whatever. The second skill set is that they know how to teach and interact with others and facilitate others' involvement in that art form. The third skill set has to do with making adaptations, and that really starts with an appreciation for diversity. Uh, almost, uh, I would say, goes well beyond that to a welcome, an expectation that um, you're going to have a group of students with a diverse set of skills, and some may need assistance in one way or the other. And then we can provide additional training about what does it mean to have the uh, disability of autism or to traumatic brain injury or whatever it might be, and what might you expect? Now, of course, a lot of our teaching artists, I would say the really good ones, Linda, um, <laughs> Um, they don't really want to know what someone's disability is. They don't really care because it, it doesn't matter to them. Um, what really matters is that person wants to be in that program, be creative, and when they come up against an obstacle, um, you th- perhaps think of someone who can't grasp a paintbrush. Well, so how are we going to make it possible for that person to paint with a paintbrush? There are many ways to figure that out. We're creative. We can come up with that. Um, There are also ways to paint without a paintbrush. (laughs) Absolutely. Gail Holtman is president and CEO of ArtMix, and Linda Whistler is vice president of programs. See and buy art on first Friday, March 3rd at the Urban Artisan Gallery at the Harrison Center for the Arts at 16th and Delaware Streets. And learn more about ArtMix at artmix.org.
Mojo Magazine said indie blues master Tad Robinson sings with a range and smoothness of delivery that are exquisitely evocative. Tad gigs around the town and around the world, and he brought his velvet voice and wailing blues style to our small studio a few days ago. Both fans and critics are crazy for Tad Robinson's latest album, Day Into Night. Last year, it garnered him his eighth nomination from the highly acclaimed Blues Foundation. I'm kind of in the community, and, and but haven't haven't landed the trophy yet. But it's you know it's part of the business to be part of the conversation at least. Yeah. Oh. You know I call home one night, reaching out that love feeling. I told myself that she be needing the same. Robinson is a major force when it comes to current soul blues artists. It's more of a blend. It's not straight, straight up blues. It's um, more kind of a marriage between the soul of the 70s, soul music of the 70s, and Chicago blues. So it's this hybrid. But it's, it's one of the dynamic forms uh, of the blues, and it's one that I've always been drawn to. Working hard, watch the two before I go to bed. What I see starts to worry me. Looks like the doggone world has gone mad. But my baby's there to remind me with just a touch of a hand, there's more good than bad. Which is why Robinson's voice is his instrument. You bring some of your heart and uh, the way you perceive the, the, the lyrics, you know, the direction they're going. So I just sing the way I feel. And when the musicians keep coming around, then you figure, well, I must be doing something right. They, they, haven't, they haven't fired me yet, you know. Yeah. I just keep on stumbling, making the same mistakes again. She's keeping the home fires burning. I take a wrong turn every now and then. Staying out late with the fellas, and I'm losing track of time. When I know deep down in my heart, I should be right there by her side. But he has great respect for his musicians. Everybody on the bandstand is a, is a pretty heavy hitter, and they're all great, you know, great players. And they, you know, they gen, generally they know a lot more than their instrument. My drummer Jeff Chapin, he plays guitar and piano, you know, and my my, my organ player Kevin Anker plays really good guitar, and he's a really good bass player. And like other soul blues artists, Robinson honors the harmonica. I mean, that's like banjo in bluegrass or tenor saxophone in straight-up jazz. Harmonica is, a, is an instrument that has become emblematic of Chicago blues and some of the, you know, or even Delta blues, early blues. It was an instrument that uh, it, it's just suited perfectly the way it's set up to express yourself in a blues format. A tradition that continues to fascinate and encourage him. You know, we call it the tin whistle or the Mississippi saxophone. And there's 10, you know, 10 holes and there's 20 reeds and there's just a world of music there. And, you you know, as you, with any instrument, I'm sure, you just keep on unpeeling the layers and finding out things that are accessible on that, that very simple, you know, children's instrument. But played at a high level, it can be very, very interesting and very expressive. No more time. Melissa Davis and Jill Dittmeyer brought us Tad Robinson's small studio sneak peek. Catch the whole event at WFYI slash small studio. You're listening to The Art of the Matter on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble. Later this hour, we'll sample some wine. But first, Eat Drink Indies' Jolene Ketzenberger recently learned about Alan and Audra Sternberg's new venture. Alan is the James Beard Award nominee and Cerulean chef, and Audra is a food photographer and event planner, and their new dinner series is called Common House. 
Well, Audra, tell me what it's been like creating or helping to create a new a new pop-up dinner series. First of all, it's it's just exciting to do it with your husband. There's a So exciting. It, it's fun to watch him get excited in a different way than just day-to-day from the restaurant and that it's contagious. And so it I get to see more of what he does in a different level and work with him and it's just brought us closer in a in a different way. I mean, we work at the restaurant together, but this is this is more about being creative with him. Tell me about the first one that the the first dinner that you held. So it it was at Wildwood Market in Fountain Square, and it's a very small place. So if you've ever been there, it's a very small market. So we had to basically create a dining room because it's there's shelves everywhere now. So we uh, made a very intimate dining feeling of it you know when you walk in there's just one giant table and everyone it was very communal so everybody sat around talking you could be right there with them through the whole dinner there was Alan I was right there and you got to just look around at each face and see everyone having a really good time and that, that that's what it's special so what was the reaction uh the first one is certainly sold out right it felt like you went to dinner at someone's home it felt like you were at a friend's house People were sharing stories, uh, talking across the table. We had a farmer there that we were using their meat, Becker, Kyle Becker. So he could he could tell stories about his animals. You know, they got to ask questions. It was a mixed bag of people, but everyone found something to talk about, and that was really special. So now where's the dinner series going from here? You have another one coming up very soon, right? Yeah, so the next one's the 19th of February. Sold out, and it's going to be at the Plow and Anchor or formerly Plow and Ecker. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are trying to keep these really small. I would much rather add a second day than add lots more seats. So how large is it? So this one's going to be 18. The first one was 16, right? The wild one was 16. And, and need to say a quick thank you to, to Craig and his wife for letting us use their their fabulous little store. Plow and is going to be 18. The theme's roots. You know, we're trying to put a theme to every dinner and we're not trying to take it too serious there's definitely some more abstract ideas coming down the line as we kind of build some trust and, and build some faith with uh, our clientele and, and you know we just want to have fun you know that's what it's all about is is creating a, a small intimate setting where where people can come relax and enjoy themselves and you know sharing our story and, and to tell them a story and you know, food's my medium for, for pretty much everything in life. It, I'm way more social on a plate than I am in person. and <laughs> that, That's an interesting concept. So people will get some understanding of of you as a person from your food. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean that's kind of where, again, where it stemmed from. You know, I was looking to have fun and, and really push myself this year. And not having the constraints of a restaurant kind of it is very liberating the very the first one was very liberating and and, you know our theme then was a market because we were going to be doing a dinner in a market it's it's been ultimately really rewarding to to be able to do this on my own and to do it with audra and and, you know caleb's been really supportive of the my my boss at the restaurant you know it's not it's not a conflict for us it's just it's a continuation of what we we preach at the restaurant about community and joy and and personal growth. So it it, it still works in now, a really nice way. And now tell me how um, a pop up series works. Kind of the nuts and bolts of it. Um, it's a ticketed event, right? And people sign up ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. So um, right now we're just using Eventbrite. We just started a, a mailing list, an email list. So we can announce. We're not going to announce a dinner until the day after the we're done with one, right? Because I think I think we sell a dinner short if we try to conceive too far ahead. Now, Audra, tell me about where people can um, find out some more information about Common House. Maybe a, little, a few details or sign up for your newsletter. So you can go to commonhouseindy.com. Right on the front page is a mailing list. You can just type your email in there, and we will uh, be sending out an email probably the day after this upcoming dinner about the next dinner. So that'll give you an option to buy tickets. We have an Eventbrite page as well, which is linked through our website. Uh, We are on Instagram. We're on Facebook and Twitter. It's Common House Indie. 
You can hear Jolene Ketzenberger's Eat, Drink, Indie Saturday mornings at 11 on WFYI HD2, The Point. WFYI's Ice Miller Wine Fest is moving to a new location this year, the Old National Center. More space means more wines, and WFYI's Jill Dittmeyer is here to tell us why that is a good thing. As if that is a legitimate question, <laughs> right, right, Sharon? I, I get it. I know. <laughs> but, you know, you can read about wine, you can study wine, you can listen to people talk about wine, but if you don't taste it, you're never really going to know if you like it or not. Now, Frederick Wildman & Sons is one of the most creative and quality wine importers in the whole country. And if you like taste and adventure, then your palate and your pocketbook are sure to be pleased with their portfolio. I recently had a wonderful conversation with Odila Galler-Noel. She is the assistant vice president of Frederick Wildman. We started our chat by asking about what wine regions and varietals that we should be looking at now to fill our glasses. I would say Spain. I would say Argentina, as always. Portugal. Portugal is hot. If you like hearty red wines, Portugal is a wonderful region. Give me some specific varietals and wines that, then that we should look for from Portugal. From Portugal, well, you've got the Douro. So it's Turiga Nacional, which is a great variety that is used in uh, as a single grape variety or sometimes in a blend. In uh, Pedrinho Verdes, obviously, that's something that's that's great with seafood. That is um, that is drunk by all Portuguese when they're in the, in, in the beach resorts of Portugal. In Spain, you have the Viora. If you're looking for something white, that's something different, that's anything but Chardonnay, and you're looking for something that's very fresh and indigenous, the Viora grape variety from Spain is fantastic. A good wine is one that you like, and a bad one is one that you don't. But if you're looking for help at the store, Odila says, don't be afraid to speak up and say, I want something fresh. I want something white. I want something that's not oaky. I want something from Slovenia. I want something from a different region that I not discovered before. They will be able to let, lead you to the right way. Odila says it's a good time to think pink, too, as in rosé wine. I think rosé wine right now, you've got different, great, different taste profiles. You have the very light Côte de Provence-style wines. You also have the hardier reds that are a little bit darker in color that have had more of that saignant feeling. Um, and those go with all types of food. Rosé is being drunk right now all year round. Want to try a new red? Head to Spain. One of my personal favorites are, you know, Tempranillo grape variety, 100% from Spain. You get the crianzas that are straightforward, that it's a twelve ninety nine bottle of wine that you can find out there that's throughout the United States, or you can go for a reserva that's been aged for two, three years, and a few more years in the bottle, it's still a great price, under 20. So that's a, that's a winner. It's got that warmth in the great variety. It's, it's the Pinot Noir of Spain, in a way. And people recognize the Pinot Noir, so they, if they're not familiar with Tempranillo, they'll like that spiciness. They like that smokiness of the wine. And as for 2017, Odila says keep an open mind and an open palate, as everything old is new again. We still need to educate quite a bit as to where white burgundies come from or what great varieties are, are used in white burgundies. People don't understand sometimes that a white burgundy is strictly Chardonnay and a red burgundy, which are, also has some great values, are Pinot Noir wines. We've been so enthralled with discovering new grape varieties in new regions, we've kind of set aside those traditional regions from France and from other countries. And the Rhone is finally coming a comeback with some great Rhone values, just strictly Côte de Rhone, uh, Lirax, Côte de Ventoux, some straight whites and rosés that are under 20 that are delicious. Now, to get a little bit more specific on the wines there, Sharon, um, at the Wine Fest, you can look for some uh, really great wines from Olivia Le Flave. They're from the Burgundy region of France. Hecton Bonnier, they're from the Languedoc, so that's the south of France. France. Uh, Luigi Bosca, is gonna, they're going to have some of their wines there. They're from Argentina. The El Coto de Rioja wines are going to be there, too. They're from Spain. Great um, uh, value wines as well. And also the Pascal Joliavet. Um, there's some beautiful wines from the Sancerre region too. So expect a lot of wines, as uh, Odila mentioned, from 
Spain, and France at the WFYI Wine Fest. I am ready. I, I have thirsty. a bottle uh, breathing over here, actually, and a, a couple of glasses. So. <laughs> breathing and bottles are good. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and tickets are available right now. Right now, online, WFYI.org. Go there. After you finish listening to us. Of After course. you finish listening to us. And, you know, you can, well, if you're listening on Saturday morning, you may not want to drink a glass of wine just yet. But later today, while you're contemplating some things you might want to do, you can think about our calendar that we call What, what Do We Do and Have a Glass of Wine. And here's a here's a something to toast to and probably to get busy with. You know, Lady Gaga, you know, she was a huge hit at the Super Bowl and at the Grammy Awards. She's coming to Indianapolis in November, and the tickets go on sale Monday, February 20th. All of her shows are selling out all over the world. So we're giving you your warning now, listeners. <laughs> if you want to see Lady Gaga live in Indianapolis in November, get ready to get your tickets on the 20th. Well, Lady Gaga was once an aspiring uh, star. She was once a teenager. And um, the Photographers Club at Warren Central High School is working really hard to encourage the next generation of artists. And they've partnered with the Irvington Historical Society to have a show of their work at the Bonna Thompson Center in Historic Irvington. There'll be an opening reception on Friday, March 3rd, and the show will run through Thursday, May 4th. So go check out the next generation of photographers from the Photographers Club at Warren Central High School at the Bonna Thompson Center in Historic Irvington. On February 20th at Butler University at the Schrott Center, the Heartland Film Festival is bringing back its uh, 2016 Grand Prize and the Audience Choice Award winner movie. It was Night School, a very powerful movie. They're going to be showing it again on the 20th at the Schrott Center. Um, tickets are very reasonable, $13 online. You can go to heartlandfilm.org. Uh, to purchase them. The screening starts at 7 o'clock, and the director will also be there after the show to answer questions. Butler University's College of Communication is putting on its annual symposium, and they've invited everything from writers to filmmakers to uh, Martha Barnett. And if you listen to Away With Words, you know that name well. And all of these folks are coming from February 20th through March 2nd. There'll be a whole series of speakers in a whole bunch of uh, free events, free and open to the public events. And the theme of this year's symposium is Communicating Difference. You can find out more at butler.edu slash ccom symposium. Butler.edu slash ccom symposium. February is a short month, so that means that the March 1st Friday will be here sooner than we think. And at the Art Bank for the month of March will be the artwork of, artwork of Israel Solomon. Uh, he has beautiful graffiti, comics, abstract expressionism, nice and colorful, eye-catching way to kick off the spring. On the March 3rd, first Friday, there'll be a reception there at Art Bank down on Mass Avenue from 6 to 9 p.m. that night. You can relive your childhood with cartoon favorites but played by the Hendrix Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Benjamin Del Vecchio. It's a concert filled with themes from nearly a dozen classic animations on Friday, February 24th at 7.30 and Sunday, February 26th at 3 at the Avon Middle School North Auditorium. Uh, reawake the child in you and go hear some fun and festive music. And also another First Friday event on Friday, March the 3rd, once again at the Landmark Center. Uh, it's a look back at, at the Indiana State Parks. Uh, Native Hoosier artist Rick Wilson will be showing his artwork there. He spent two years traveling around to the state parks. It was part of the Bicentennial Project. going to be a, a nice evening for everyone. Admission is free and parking is everywhere there at the <laughs> Landmark Center, 6 to 9 o'clock on Friday, March the 3rd. You can learn lots more about local arts events at IndieArts.org slash guide, the Arts Council of Indianapolis's Indie Arts Guide, or you can join us again next week for that calendar we call What, what Do We Do? You're listening to The Art of the Matter, a weekly show about the arts in Indianapolis and central Indiana. Your host is Sharon Gamble. If your arts organization has an event or activity of which you think we should be aware, please contact us at least three weeks in advance. You can write us at The Art of the Matter, care of WFYI, 1630 North Meridian Street, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46202, or you can email us at aotm at wfyi.org. You can also hear The Art of the Matter on wfyi.org.
You're listening to The Art of the Matter on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble. The Indiana Wind Symphony began two decades ago as a place to showcase the music of wind and brass instruments, plus a few outliers. I invited the IWS's founder and music director, Dr. Charles Conrad, to tell me why conducting is the easiest gig on the stage and why the ensemble loves the challenge of world premieres. So, first of all, congratulations on starting the Indiana Wind Symphony and keeping it going. You've, you've built something that uh, is quite an institution. Oh, thank you so much. It is such a pleasure, and I just feel very blessed to have such a wonderful ensemble and such a wonderful venue to perform in. Um, you came to uh, you came to wind music early. You were a trumpeter. When did the trumpet call out to you? Oh, when I saw Doc Severinsen when I was in sixth grade. Whoa. He did a concert at Arlington High School, and I was hooked. So it's one thing to fall in love with an instrument and take lessons. It's another to say, this is what I'm going to do for a living. I'm going to be involved with music. I'm going to, and, and then how did you get from there to conducting? Well, I started out as a professional trumpet player and almost by accident became the assistant conductor of the Carmel Symphony when it was a brand new organization. What do you mean almost by accident? Say more about that. Well, I I was the first trumpet and they had an interim conductor and they wanted an assistant conductor potentially to move up to become the conductor. Mm-hmm. And at first, they talked to me about trying to get my father-in-law to do it. And he was a a high school band director. Okay. And he decided not to do it. And uh, the board member said, well, do you want to give it a shot? Wow. And I had never really considered it and decided I'd I'd take a shot at it. Did it suit you immediately, or did you have to kind of grow into that role? Because that's very different than sitting in a section, even if you're leading the section. Sure. No, I I think I immediately uh, realized that it was a lot easier physical work than playing the trumpet. I didn't have to worry if I had a cold or didn't have to worry what I ate for two hours before the performance. (laughs) But it was a lot more intensive mental preparation. Sure. And I, I enjoyed that challenge. How did you decide to start the Indiana Wind Symphony, and, and, and it occurs to me we might maybe even define what is a wind symphony. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, the Indiana Wind Symphony is a 75-piece concert band. So it's it's a, it's a full concert band, but there were so many other uh, local ensembles with the word band in the title. Mm-hmm. We were looking for a name, and we just thought this was one that would be memorable and might set us apart from sure. the from the other ensembles that existed. And there are some people on the stage who are not wind or brass players. Right. We do have percussion. Uh, we do have a harpist. Uh, Melissa Gallant's our harpist, and she's been with us since day one. She's she's wonderful. And we do have one string bass. And every once in a while a piano. Right. The repertoire calls for. Right. Yeah. If, whatever the composer writes for, that's what we'll use. We, When we do uh, Rhapsody in Blue, we use the banjo player because that is part of the original instrumentation. Fun. It strikes me that as uh, as a programmer, doing theme concerts such as the ones you have remaining this season like brush strokes music inspired by paintings that pushes you and your players to get beyond core repertoire so brush strokes i'm not surprised pictures at an exhibition shows up but you have a a Norman Rockwell suite by a composer I'm not familiar with? Right. This was uh, this is a, a brand new one, and it's three of Rockwell's uh, favorite, uh, most famous paintings done by a Japanese composer named Hirosa. Huh. And it really is a wonderful piece. This one's going to be conducted by our assistant conductor, Nathan Vogus. Fantastic. Tell us about, um, you have a piece called Chiaroscuro by a, another composer. Sorry, I'm not familiar with uh, Mr. or Ms. Beversluis. It's Nathan Beversluis, and he's actually a graduate of North Central High School. No way. And is now the conductor of the Greensboro, North Carolina Symphony. And, um, yeah, it's going to be a world premiere, and, of course, it refers to the use of light and dark. Right. in paintings, and we just read it for the first time last week, and I think it's going to be a wonderful addition to the repertoire. Everybody really loved it. What What is the hardest thing about programming the Wind Symphony? To be honest with you, what to leave out. <laughs> it would be really easy to program 34-hour concerts a year. Yeah. 
But to come up with six basically hour-and-a-half concerts a year, just deciding what not to play. Wow. And where do you get your inspiration? Do you travel a lot hearing other music? Oh, uh, yeah, I try to. I try to listen a lot, um, take some CDs when I'm driving someplace and just try to hear anything new that's, that's come up in the, in the world of band music. Dr. Charles Conrad is founder and music director of the Indiana Wind Symphony. The next concert is called Brushstrokes, and it's on Saturday, February 25th at 7.30 at the Palladium in Carmel. Upcoming concerts include The Lure of the Sea and Dreams of Italy, and you can learn more and find out what openings the ensemble has at indianawindsymphony.org. Beginning March 11th, the Sydney and Lois Eskenazi Museum of Art at Indiana University will present A Step in Time Across the Line, recent work by Chi Wang Ning, the artist's first solo museum presentation. The exhibit will feature large-scale conceptual photography, video, and installation work, including two new series of works that have never before been shown. Chi says his work is designed to shed light on traditional Chinese culture and the immigrant experience. In a phone conversation with the Art of the Matter contributor, Mark Allen, Chi talked about what visitors can expect. So um, I, I guess I should ask you, have you eaten your rice? Oh, thank you. Yep, definitely. <laughs> okay, good. And and you want to explain to people what that means exactly? Uh, eating your fill of rice is, is typically a Chinese uh, vernacular um, greetings. And pretty much, you know, in you know, in the, in the olden days, uh, when someone asked you, "Have you eaten your fill of rice?" Basically, they're concerned about you know how you're doing. And if you were to use that typical American, you know, um, way of saying it's "What's up?" You know, right. so as simple as that. And um, and since rice has been eaten, um, you know, pretty much a big part of the Asia. Uh, this given your fill of rice is pretty much not only um, being used in the um, Chinese uh, vernacular greetings, uh, in the olden form of the Japanese, they also use that, and same with the Koreans or the, uh, even the Vietnamese. So it's you know, kind of across the board for the uh, eastern part of Asia okay. um, as a form of greeting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, your exhibit that's going to be here, um, a step across time. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a step in time across the line, is being described as your first solo museum presentation. Um, tell us how that came about. Yeah, well, that is. Uh, I've done um, a museum show before, and I even have a, a solo show at uh, you know in New Zealand. But this would be my first uh, museum. Um, uh, should, I, should I say accredited uh, museum, uh, a full-scale uh, show. And uh, basically, I was, uh, uh, you know, I, I got in touch with uh, Judy Stubbs at the Indiana um, University and uh, a couple of years ago when I had a, when I was part of, I uh, was chosen for the um, Kinsley Institute uh, annual uh, sex show. And one of my work from this, from my eating a fill of rice, was um, was chosen for that show. And uh, my work is basically, uh, you know, about the Chinese identity, uh, especially the Chinese diaspora identity, and you know, which cover uh, the whole different aspect of the um, Chineseness. And one part of it is also about you know sexuality. And I was really honored. I was so elated that, you know, as part of it so that I can break away from the, um, you know, the simple, typical um, confine of, uh, of my topic, you know. Yes. So, and then uh, when I, uh, I still kept in touch with uh, Judy, and then, then when I got this series, I sort of, you know, you know, forwarded to her, I said, you know, how do you like it? She said, oh, I love it, and, uh, you know. And she kept quiet, and then suddenly this opportunity came around. She said, Chi, uh, we're thinking of using uh, this piece of work. Uh, would you like to show we have this program? I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very, uh, you know, pretty much uh, the right time at the right place, I guess, you know. Okay. Um, the, it, the, um, the, the literature that I've read about the exhibit says the exhibit explores what it means to be Chinese in an increasingly multicultural and transnational world. So 
I, you, you've put that into art. Can you put it into words? What does it mean to be Chinese in an increasingly multicultural and transnational world? Well, I, I grew up in Malaysia, which is a multi-racial country. And in terms of uh, racial identity, I'm you know, much more sensitive to that. And as, as, uh, as it is, I'm, you know, I'm in New York, and I'm so cultural, it's, you know, it's become a second nature. And you know, so in a way that I so use it as the, as the focus of my work to see the different um, you know, uh, identity of, 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 uh, of, of, race, of race and you know, what's so distinctive about race. You know? And uh, right now, you know, with China in the forefront as one of the, um, you know, the world uh, economical and political power, and that has sort of changed the whole dynam- dynamic. And also, there's a big difference between national Chinese and the Chinese diaspora. So, so I saw play against, um, you know, with this uh, issue and contemporary contemporary art is about, um, you know, what is relevant right now. To me, you know, these are the topics that we talk about and we discuss. So I put it in a visual form, um, you know, certain, uh, certain identity issues and certain uh, historical issues so that we can bring it into uh, be much more relevant uh, you know for us today so the at the, the top the uh, title of my show a step in time across the line not only talk about the uh, the 75 Chinese that was sent in, uh, you know to North Adam Massachusetts to become the uh, strike breaker in the shoe factory but also how it relates to Little Rock Nine, you know, the the bunch of uh, black kids that uh, will have to be escorted into the high school. Mm-hmm. So across the line is that what line do we need to break? You know, what boundary do we need to break? So, you know, it's not only about identity, about, you know, humanity, about the social issue that we face today, you know. So it's it's um, it's a ticket. Uh, my work is very much multi-layered, so... It's a lot of reading to it, but um, also to make it more contem- contem- contemporary in a way that you were to, uh, you know, take up, take it at at a point and a more of a reflect, a reflective quality to it, so we can discuss about it, so we understand it better. Because a lot of time, history is written in a book. When you shove it up back into the you know, the shelf, and nobody talk about it anymore. But I wanted to bring it to the present that we have a deeper understanding about it, the more we discuss about it, so we have a much, much more of a, of a you know, better relationship with each other. You yeah. Know? yeah. You, um, the first image that I've seen from the show is the a picture of a, a bowl of rice and silver chopsticks a, a, sitting atop an array of Campbell's soup cans. And I think the first thing, you know, most people would think of was Andy Warhol or... Or maybe how nice it would be to have some soup on a hot, on a cold day. <laughs> but, but what, what do you want people to feel when they, or see, think when they see that particular image? It's always delicious to have a, you know, a, a nice bowl of rice and with some soup as a, as a condiment. That kind of deal. That piece basically, it is basically pay homage to Warhol, but at the same time, it's it's also a uh, when contemporary artists do work, it also have. Um, uh, dialogue between what was the, the past with the present. So I'm basically have a dialogue with uh, you know an artist, an artistic dialogue with Warhol in the sense that I'm paying homage to him, but at the same time using as a space, uh, use it as a base to build upon. And the title of the piece is "Ruthless Peace," uh, in a sense that in um, in Chinese it means "on mo yao," that means you know birth grief. So it's griefless peace, uh, because the word peace is in Warhol name in Chinese. One of his characters it means peace. And uh, I, it, it seems like we may be in for a rough next four years when it comes to U.S.-Chinese relations. So, tell me, what, what do you think the U.S. needs to understand about China, and what does China need to know about the U.S.? Well, it needs basically a lot of times when when the issues are involved, you know, no, no question about who we are and what we are. We're still humans. 
So we have to understand what the different needs are. You know, it's also uh, when talked about politics, it's also it's a matter of give and take. So you know, it's I'm only an artist. I can do my part to uh, <laughs> to you know give um, level of understanding. You know, basically, you know what are the basic needs. If the basic needs are fulfilled, you know what else. And it's up to the big guy that you know do their part. You know. But one of the things, interesting thing about uh, rice is that um, uh, is rice is the most common uh, staple of the world, and it's the cheapest staple. And once the people are being fat, you know they are uh, assured of uh, world security. So that's one thing about rice. That's why this uh, series is rather. Um, political in a way, in a sense that say, hey, you know, you have to you have to fulfill your basic needs first, and you know, and between the big guys, hey, you guys figure it out. <laughs> Contributor Mark Allen, Chi Wang Ning's exhibit "A Step in Time Across the Line" will be at the Eskenazi Museum at Indiana University from March 11th through May 7th. For more information, visit artmuseum.indiana.edu. A cultural manifesto's Kyle Long invited Partners of the Americas President Roseanne Zelmanovitz to share some Brazilian tunes in honor of her organization's annual Brazilian Fijota Lunch. I'm Kyle Long from Cultural Manifesto. I'm here with Rosani Zelmanovitz, president of the Indiana chapter of the Partners of the Americas. The Partners of the Americas will be hosting their annual Brazilian Fejuada event from 1 to 3.30 p.m. on Sunday, February 26th at the central campus of Ivy Tech Community College in Indianapolis. You can find more information or purchase tickets online at inpartners.org. That's inpartners.org. And Hosani, feijoada is often called the national dish of Brazil. Can you give us a quick description of what feijoada is? Well, feijoada is a um, celebration of uh, family and friends with simple, affordable food based on uh, uh, black beans, a stew of black beans and pork, ears, tail, feet, all those things that people usually don't eat. <laughs> we put it all in a... Uh, the black beans and serve with other side dishes. It's a very popular dish, for, especially for Sunday lunch in Brazil. Yeah, and you'll have some great culinary students at Ivy Tech preparing a special version of this dish to share here in Indianapolis on yes. February 26th. Yes, And correct. today you have five songs to share with us, five Brazilian songs. What's your first song for us? Well, there is one, just to tie with the feijoada thing, <laughs> that it's called Tô Voltando. Pode armando coreto e preparando aquele feijão preto eu tô voltando. It means I'm back, I'm coming back home. That he wrote uh, right after the, dicta uh, the military dictatorships, uh, when a lot of artists, philosophers, politic uh, politicians were uh, exiled, and they were finally able to go back to Brazil. So he wrote this. The lyrics are pretty much celebrating his coming back to Brazil, and they say, oh, put more, add more uh, water in that feijoada because I'm back. And your second song for us, Rosani? Well, there is one that's very dear to my heart, uh, Elise Regina, very fam famous uh, singer, and the song is Alô, Alô, Marciano, which means hello, hello, Martians. And she is uh, talking about how things are messed up. And what would Martians would think, you know, if they suddenly arrive here? What's going on? What's in this country? So crazy, you know? Uh, it's, uh, it's funny, but it's also a, an interesting, you know, critique of what was going on at the time. And number three. Well, there's another <laughs> singer that I love very much, Neymar Grosso. And the song is Não Existe Pecado ao Sul do Equador, meaning uh, there is no sin uh, below uh, Ecuador. So 
which means uh, Brazil uh, is a place where you can really be free and be happy and celebrate life and dance and sing and eat and drink. And we hug each other all the time, we kiss each other all the time, meaning that people are, in a certain sense, uh, almost naive in the way they express themselves and they just live their lives so freely and happy. Your fourth song is from a singer who has spanned many generations and waves of genres over the years. Tell us about this singer. Elsa Soares, uh, I used to say that she is the Billie Holiday of Brazil. Because of her personal uh, story as well, a very tragic and complicated life, uh, but she managed somehow to survive all that and with this raspy voice, uh, she she navigated through decades, uh, you know, ups and downs, uh, moments of huge success, moments where she was really, really down. And But she had an extraordinary life, and I love her voice very much. And your fifth song is an artist representing your home state, right? Yeah, it's a new generation, Adriana Calcagnotto, She's a composer and singer, and she she has a, a range that's impressive. I love her. A nice voice as well. Our guest has been Hosani Zelmanovic, president of the Indiana chapter of the Partners of the Americas. She's here to tell us about a Brazilian feijoada happening Sunday, February 26th, at Ivy Tech Community College. You can go to impartners.org to find more information. Hosani, thank you so much for being here to share these songs and tell us about the event. Absolutely. Thank you, Kyle. Hear Kyle's A Cultural Manifesto on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio Wednesday nights at 9 or Saturday nights at 10. Thanks for listening to The Art of the Matter on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble, and today's contributors included Mark Allen, Melissa Davis, and Jill Dittmeyer. Hear the Art of the Matter Saturday mornings at 7 or join us Thursday nights at 9 after Indivisible. And remember, you can always listen to and share our podcast at WFYI.org. Next week, we'll sing some torch songs with the great Ella Fitzgerald, hear how the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra learns to accompany Charlie Chaplin's great silent film, City Lights, and discover the House Life Project. And, of course, we'll have that arts calendar we call What Will We Do? All of that and so much more on The Art of the Matter here on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. You've been listening to The Art of the Matter, a weekly show about the arts in central Indiana and Indianapolis. The Art of the Matter is executive producer Roxana Caldwell, producer Melissa Davis, contributor Jill Dittmeyer, and host Sharon Gamble. The Art of the Matter, made possible by the ongoing support of listeners like you.